For the moment, such tightrope balancing was suspended along with all other thought in the archaic and aromatic countryside, if it could be called that, where he went shooting every morning. The term countryside implies soil transformed by labor, but the scrub clinging to the slopes was still in the very same state of scented tangle in which it had been found by Phoenicians, Dorians and Ionians when they embarked in Sicily, that America of antiquity. Don Fabrizio and Tumeo climbed up and down, slipped and were scratched by thorns, just as an Archidamos or Philostratus must have got tired and scratched twenty-five centuries before. They saw the same objects, their clothes were soaked with just as sticky a sweat. The same indifferent breeze blew steadily from the sea, moving myrtles and broom, spreading a smell of thyme. The dog's sudden pauses for thought, their tension waiting for prey, was the very same as when Artemis was invoked for the chase. Reduced to these basic elements, its face washed clean of worries, life took on a tolerable aspect. That morning, shortly before reaching the top of the hill, Aguto and Teresina began the hieratic dance of dogs who have scented prey stretching, stiffening, prudently raising paws, repressing barks. A few minutes later, a tiny beige-coloured backside slid through the grass, and two almost simultaneous shots ended the silent wait. At the prince's feet, Aguto placed an animal in its death throes. It was a wild rabbit. Its humble, dun-coloured coat had been unable to save it. Horrible wounds lacerated snout and chest. Don Fabrizio found himself stared at by big black eyes, soon overlaid by a glaucous veil. They were looking at him with no reproval, but full of tortured amazement at the whole ordering of things. The velvety ears were already cold, the vigorous paws contracting in rhythm, still living symbols of useless flight. The animal had died tortured by anxious hopes of salvation, imagining it could still escape when it was already caught, just like so many human beings. While sympathetic fingers were still stroking that poor snout, the animal gave a last quiver and died. Don Fabrizio and Don Chicho had had their bit of fun, the former not only the pleasure of killing but also the comfort of compassion. 
When the sportsmen reached the top of the hill, there, among the tamarisks and scattered cork trees, appeared the real Sicily again, the one compared to which baroque towns and orange groves are mere trifles. Aridly undulating to the horizon in hillock after hillock, comfortless and irrational, with no lines that the mind could grasp, conceived apparently in a delirious moment of creation, a sea suddenly petrified at the instant when a change of wind had flung the waves into a frenzy. Dona Fugata lay huddled and hidden in an anonymous fold of the ground, and not a living soul was to be seen. The only signs of the passage of man were scraggy rows of vines. Beyond the hills on one side was the indigo smudge of the sea, more mineral and barren even than the land. The slight breeze moved over all, universalizing the smell of dung, carrion and sage, cancelling, suppressing, reordering each thing in its careless passage, it dried up the little drops of blood, which were the only residue of the rabbit. Far away it ruffled the locks of Garibaldi, and further still flung dust in the eyes of Neapolitan soldiers, hurriedly reinforcing the battlements of Gaeta. Deluded by hope as vain, as the rabbit's frenzied flight. The prince and the organist rested under the circumscribed shadow of cork trees. They drank tepid wine from wooden bottles with a roast chicken from Don Fabrizio's haversack, ate little cakes called muffoletti, dusted with raw flour which Don Ciccio had brought with him, and local grapes so ugly to look at and so good to eat. With hunks of bread they satisfied the hungry dogs, standing there in front of them, impassive as bailiffs, bent on getting debts paid. Under the monarchic sun, Don Fabrizio, and Don Ciccio were dozing off. But though a shot had killed the rabbit, though the bored rifles of General Cialdini were now dismaying the Bourbon troops at Gaeta, though the midday heat was making men doze off, nothing could stop the ants. Attracted by a few chewed grape skins spat out by Don Ciccio along, they rushed in close order, morale high at the chance of annexing this bit of garbage soaked with an organist's saliva. Up they came, full of confidence, disordered but resolute. Groups of three or four would stop now and again, for a chat, exalting perhaps the ancient glories and future prosperity 
of Ant Hill Number no. Two under Cork Tree Number no. Four on the top of Mount Morco. Then once again they would take up their march with the others towards a buoyant future. The gleaming backs of those imperialists seemed to quiver with enthusiasm, while from their ranks, no doubt, rose the notes of an anthem. By some association of ideas which it would be inopportune to pursue, the activity of these insects prevented the prince from sleeping and reminded him of the days of the plebiscite about unification, through which he had lived shortly before at Dona Fugata itself. Apart from a sense of amazement, those days had left him many an enigma to solve. Now, in sight of nature, which, except for aunts, obviously had no such bothers, he might perhaps find a solution for one of them. The dogs were sleeping, stretched and crouched like figures in relief. The little rabbit hanging head down from a branch was swinging out diagonally under the constant surge of wind, but Tumeo, with the help of his pipe, still managed to keep his eyes open. And you, Don Chicho, how did you vote on the 21st? The poor man started, taken by surprise at a moment when he was outside the stockade of precautions in which, like each of his fellow townsmen, he usually moved. He hesitated, not knowing what to reply. The prince mistook for alarm what was really only surprise and felt irritated. Well, what are you afraid of? There's no one here but us, the wind and the dogs. The so... And then there's the tale of the plebiscite for unification, when actually people didn't all vote yes, but the result was proclaimed as a 100% vote for yes, and this was disgusting to Fabricio, because he thought, once again, People are not listened to. So, on the top of Monte Morco, all was clear now in bright light, but the gloom of that night still lay stagnant deep in Don Fabrizio's heart. His din discomfort had become more irksome if vaguer. It had no connection at all with the great matters of which the plebiscite marked the start of a solution. The major interests of the kingdom, of the two Sicilies, and of his own class, his personal privileges, had come through all these events battered, but still lively. In the circumstances he could not well expect more.
No, his discomfort was not of a political nature and must have deeper roots somewhere in one of those reasons which we call irrational because they are buried under layers of self-ignorance. Italy was born on that sullen night at Dona Fugata, born right there in that forgotten little town, just as much as in the sloth of Palermo or the clamour of Naples. But an evil fairy of unknown name must have been present. Anyway, Italy was born and one could only hope that she would live on in this form. Any other would be worse. Agreed. And yet, this persistent disquiet of his must mean something. During that too brief announcement of figures, just as during those two emphatic speeches, he had a feeling that something, someone, had died. God only knew in what back alley, in what corner of the popular conscience. The cool air had dispersed Don Chicho's somnolence, the massive grandeur of the prince dispelled his fears. All that remained afloat now on the surface of his conscience was resentment, Useless, of course, but not ignoble. He stood up, spoke in dialect, and gesticulated, a pathetic puppet who, in some absurd way, was right. I, Excellency, voted no. No, a hundred times no. I know what you told me. Necessity, unity, experience. Expediency, you may be right. I know nothing of politics. Such things I leave to others. But Chicho Tumeo is honest, poor though he may be, with his trousers in holes, and he slapped the carefully mended patches on the buttocks of his shooting breeches. And I don't forget favours done me. Those swine in the town hall just swallowed up my opinion, chewed it, and then spat it out, transformed as they wanted. I said black, and they made me say white. The one time when I could say what I thought, that blood-sucker Siddhara went and annulled it, behaved as if I never existed, as if I never meant a thing, me, Francesco Tumeo La Manna, son of the late Leonardo, organist of the Mother Church of Adona Fugata, a better man than he is. To think I'd even dedicated to him a mazurka composed by me at the birth of that. He bit a finger to rein himself in, that mincing daughter of his. At this point, calm descended on Don Fabrizio, who had finally solved the enigma. Now he knew who had been killed at Dona Fugata. At a hundred other places in the course of that night of 
dirty wind, a newborn babe, good faith, just the very child who should have been cared for most, whose strengthening would have justified all the silly vandalisms. Don Chicho's negative vote, fifty similar votes at Dona Fugata, a hundred thousand no's in the whole kingdom would have had no effect on the result, have made it, in fact, if anything, more significant, and this maiming of souls would have been avoided. Six months before, they used to hear a rough, despotic voice saying, Do what I say, or you're for it. Now there was already an impression of such a threat being replaced by a moneylender's soapy tones. But you signed it yourself, didn't you? Can't you see? It's quite clear. You must do as we say, for here are the IOUs. Your will is identical with mine. Don Chicho was still thundering on. For you nobles, it's different. You might be ungrateful about an extra estate, but we must be grateful for a bit of bread. It's different again for profiteers like Sitara, with whom cheating is a law of nature. Small folk like us have to take things as they come, you know, Excellency, that my father, God rest his soul, was gamekeeper at the royal shoot of San Onofrio back in Ferdinand IV's time, when the English were here. It was a hard life, but the green royal livery and the silver plaque conferred authority. Queen Isabella, the Spaniard, was Duchess of Calabria then, and it was she who had me study, made me what I am now, organist of the Mother Church, honoured by Your Excellency's kindness, when my mother sent off a petition to court in our years of greatest need, back came five gold ounces, sure as death, for they were fond of us there in Naples. They knew we were decent folk and faithful subjects. When the king came, he used to clap my father on the shoulder. Don Leona, he said, I wish we'd more like you, devoted to the throne and to my person. Then the officer in attendance used to hand out gold coin, arms, they call it now, that truly royal generosity, and they call it that so as not to give any themselves. But it was just a reward for loyalty. And if those holy kings and lovely queens are looking down at us from heaven today, what would they say? The son of Don Leonardo Tumeo betrayed us. Luckily, the truth is known in paradise. Yes, Excellency, I know people like you have told me such things from royalty mean nothing. They're just part of the job. That may be true, in fact is true, but we got those five gold ounces. That's a fact, and they helped us through the winter. And now I could repay the debt, my no becomes a yes. I used to be a faithful subject. I've become a filthy bourbonite. Everyone's Savoyard nowadays, but I take Savoyards 
with coffee, and he dipped an invisible biscuit between finger and thumb into an imaginary cup.